Hello, and you're very welcome to Amplify Archaeology. In this first episode in our little mini-series running up to the winter solstice at Newgrange, I had the opportunity to talk to Professor Maurice O'Sullivan. A real legend in Irish archaeology, Maurice has extensive experience and a particular interest in megalithic art. Maurice also excavated the Passage Tomb at Knockrow in County Kilkenny, which like Newgrange also has alignments with the midwinter solstice. I discussed Knockrow, Newgrange, megalithic art, meanings and all manner of things with Morris in this interview and I really hope you enjoy it. Given the Covid restrictions this interview had to take place over Zoom so there might be the odd little audio wobble here and there. I hope you'll forgive that. But join us as we start to try to find the light at the end of the tunnel of Newbridge and Neolithic Island. Thanks a million for joining me. Morris, uh, we're going to be talking about Newgrange, I suppose, given the time of year that it is. Can you remember what your first impressions of the site were? What, what was it like then when you saw it? Well, when I first saw Newgrange, I was an undergraduate student. And it's very difficult to recognise now that back then in the 1970s, this is the mid-70s, Newgrange wasn't as well known nationally as it is today. Um, in fact, I'm not sure I had even heard of Newgrange before I began my university studies. And as an undergraduate student, I went to see Newgrange and I found it, it's very hard to describe today almost or to imagine to, you know, I, I thought about this, that I found it slightly alien, sort of a slightly bleak and cold place, you know, probably because it was midwinter or the middle of the winter or something. We didn't really know about the solstice at that stage. And, um, it was only subsequently when I, first of all, I got to know people like Claire Tuffy, who was the, who was the manager today, and, and Michael J. O'Kelly, who was the excavator, and who was very kind to me at the time and brought me around on a personal tour, which I really appreciated. But also, as I got to know Newgrange, and I realized that this was Brunabonia, and it had this fantastic mythology around it, and I got to recognize that it was linked with the River Boyne, which has this huge depth of mythology behind it. And then I realized, well, Newgrange is older than that again. And in fact, the very foundations of Ireland, in a, in a way, are to be found at places like Newgrange and Cagey Fields and Tara, where you have the Mount of the Hostages. These Stone Age sites, the Irish society, Irish civilization almost, springs ultimately from these places. Yeah, and I suppose... Uh you've had a particular interest in megalithic art and the Boyne Valley has some of the most spectacular and, and wealth of art, I suppose, in, in the whole of Europe. It, you know, Newgrange um, is, is one of the best places to experience that. And has, has the way that you think about the art kind of changed considerably over the years that you've been studying it? Or do you ever think that we'll get to understand the meanings behind some. Yeah, um, I suppose the, yes, of course, my way of thinking about it has changed. I mean, when I was a student, we learned about the art, essentially, and there were, I suppose you could say, two camps. One camp thought that the art 
represented faces of some kind. And that was really going out of date at the time. And then the other camp that was very strong at the time was a sort of a nihilistic one. We'll never understand what it means, so there's no point in wasting our time, you know. Um, and I suppose over the years then, since then, my own thinking about it has become far more nuanced and subtle, you know, in a sense that it has grown in depth. And I realized that, of course, we can't understand the full meaning, but also, the language, the artwork is not like a sort of a code or a, or a, a language that you can simply translate. Mm -hmm. And everyone knows this, for example, if you're learning a foreign language, you have to learn the civilization in order to understand the language, really, and to understand what's going on in the language. Well, it's the same with megalithic art that you could, of course, say, oh, well, that means this and this means that. But you're really telling more about yourself than you are about the civilization and what the art meant to them. So I really, what I find is that the more you study, you know, these passage tombs and the more you get to know the thinking of the people that were creating them, the more you actually come to appreciate what the art is about and the sort of subtle messages it carries. And it carries many subtle messages. So in terms of actually getting to the meaning, you can certainly get at meanings within the art and there are very clearly messages being sent through the artwork. But it's not as if there is a simple Rosetta stone that we could all crack. And, and I think that's the mistake that has often been made. That's true. That's very true. Yeah. And I think, you know, that idea that we bring ourselves, you know, we only look through the lenses that we can look through. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And, and we bring perspectives, which are valuable as it happens, as yeah. long as we don't think that that's the truth and that's the only truth. You know? <laughs> yes, yeah. you don't, don't get too dogmatic about it. But yeah, absolutely. Hard to get dogmatic about any sort of art interpretation, isn't it, really? Yeah, well, very true, you know. Yeah. And I suppose it's the same with, uh, you know, if you... Um, you know, try to even understand what's going on in the mind of someone like Van Gogh, who lived only 150 years ago, you know, that are less, you know, that even that is difficult, you know, like what's going on in a person in the artwork, you know. So it, there's a lot more happening at a personal and a general society level within the artwork. And do you know, with, with your familiarity of megalithic art, and, and you know, the, these tombs have as a phenomenon, if you like, have quite yeah. a long time span. Do you see that um, there are different motifs kind of coming and going almost out of fashion or that it's a different group's expression? Or do you see that there's consistency almost from when Megalithic art first appears all the way to the later phases of it? Yeah, I think there is. there are changes. Um, but not everywhere, you know. I think one of the difficulties we do have, because art is simply carved on stone, one of the difficulties is this issue of dating. You know, when was it applied? Was it applied over a period of a couple of centuries? Was it applied within a very short time? One thing that becomes very clear when you look at Newgrange is that you definitely have two phases of artwork at Newgrange. You have the original phase, which has the spirals and circles and you know the zigzags the usual motifs we associate with passage to mart but then someone came along subsequently and it's called pick dressing basically they dressed the whole face of the stone and but they didn't dress it um in the sort of systematic way you would paint a wall they dressed it differentially so that they didn't go all the way down to ground level for example 
And they didn't, you know, it was obviously someone standing within the tomb, so it doesn't go out of, of arm's reach, you know. Uh, also, it follows particular contours in the stone. You know, they're, it's sculptural, in other words, or plastic. It's, it's treating the stone as something to be decorated. And the strange thing about that second layer of art at Newgrange is that it essentially pays very little attention to, what, to, the, previous, to the art that existed already, the geometric artwork except in one or two very specialized cases. Okay. So that's Newgrange. But then when you go to Nowth, um, it's different at Nowth. Okay. What's happening at Nowth actually is that obviously there's more artwork. When you come to Newgrange, I go back to Newgrange for a moment, along the curb at Newgrange, when you walk around the curb at Newgrange, you, three, you meet three highly decorated stones. The one at the entrance, uh, which is K1 as it's called, Curbstone 52 then directly across from it, and then Curbstone 67, three highly decorated curbstones. When you go to Nowth, you actually have uh, about 90 decorated stones, curbstones, and about 70 of them are pretty extensively decorated. So it's a different type of thing. But the second difference is that at Nowth, I described at Newgrange two layers of art. It's more difficult to pick that out at Nowth because what's happening at Nowth is you have the art evolving at Nowth. So whatever happened was developed at Nowth and it's really the only place you can see that happening. That's very So it's a fascinating site. It is because I think we tend to think about, you know, from the outside perspective, you tend to think about Newgrange and Nowth and Nowth as all being the same culture yeah. almost, this built at the same time and all of this, and it becomes a very simplistic story, but there's a lot of nuance to it. There is, and the other thing about Nowth is that, I'm sorry for slipping away from Newgrange for a moment, is that you've things are far more complex at Nowth. So, for example, you have, it's called linear artwork at Nowth. It's uh, inside in the tombs. There are these designs that they don't create geometric shapes so much. They tend to follow sort of shoulders on the stone, etc. And they're lines of artwork. And the only real parallel for them is to be found in Brittany. You know, so they're absorbing ideas from overseas in a way that Newgrange isn't, strangely enough. One thing, and this, this might be a bit of an odd question, but one thing I often think of when I'm thinking of depictions on film of medieval you know, Ireland or Britain or wherever it happens to be, it's always very uh, monochrome. It's always very yeah. black and white and birthstone. And of course it wasn't during the medieval period. Yeah. Do you Absolutely. think that tombs like Newgrange with the rich layers of art, do you think they might have been colored? I, it's possible, um, you know, it's possible. I think there's one thing to bear in mind with regard to the Irish sites, um, which is that, they use the type of stone that's used most commonly at Newgrange and Nowth, and also at Knock Road on County Kilkenny, is grey wacky, which is a green sandstone. And green sandstone, when we excavated, the artwork looks so bold in it because um, the green interior of the stone has a rich, almost viridian colour. You know, it's very, very rich. And then the natural pattern of the stone, where it's weathered, you know, is brownish. So that there was actually no need to paint it originally. Okay. Now, yeah, it it was actually coloured automatically, so to speak. Now that doesn't say it wasn't painted, but I think it's worth bearing in mind. Now the strange thing is, under the influence of the Irish weather, 
that changes rather quickly, as you know from the various sites yourself, Neil. You mm. know that the the art sort of fades then back in colorwise into the stone itself. That's right. You know, it's very okay. interesting to to think about it like that. And I, I suppose you know we we kind of just mentioned it there um, a little. Of course, Newgrange isn't the only monument to have a solar alignment. No. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You know and. Um, I suppose my local one is Dockerell, of course, which, yes. which you excavated yourself. And, and it, that was, I always felt that it was a wonderful way to mark the ending of the year, having the community all together there, you know, drinking the mulled wine and eating the mince pies, much as people did in Neolithic Island. <laughs> Absolutely. No, um, you're, you're, you're so right. <laughs> but do you think that the, the builders of the tomb and the late Knockrow are, the various kind of people involved with Newgrange, because it has such a very long lifespan, Nocro too, do you think they kind of gathered together in that sort of almost celebration, reflective kind of an idea? Or do you think that there was something more religious and almost alien towards today in, in some ways? What When you're picturing the ceremonies that might have happened at a site like Nocro or a site like Newgrange, at the time, during the, the later yeah. phase of the monument. What are you imagining that people would do? I, I think if I could pick up your point about the modern one, uh, first, uh, Neil, I think you're absolutely right about that, that when I first went to Knock Row, um, I began excavating there in 1990. And uh, later on that same summer, I was asked to come down because the local community was celebrating mass at the site. And it turned out, I, I discovered that this had been a tradition, you know, locally for a while, that they went around to the different graveyards uh, and they included the site itself as one of the graveyards, uh, which was very interesting that they prayed for the people who were there. And I think that's a wonderful connection with the past. And then, as you said, the solstice uh, assemblies now are just such lovely occasions, as you say, I, I, you wouldn't miss them for the, you know, the life of you. And I think the same thing, probably of a similar nature, but obviously expressed in their own way, just like we express things in our own way. That uh, I think they would have. Ex I, I could imagine um, assemblies there. I, I think there's no doubt. One of the things I like to imagine is that, of course, the landscape, the actual appearance with trees and crops and so on, and field boundaries, that's slightly different today. But the actual shape of the landscape is exactly as it would have been. And, you know, they still had green grass and so forth. And what I find interesting, I suppose, is in my own mind, like you say, trying to imagine these people arriving at the site. How did they arrive at the site? You know, mm. where did they approach from? I, I find that fascinating in my own mind, you know. Um, as we know, as you know, we have uh, the eastern tomb aligned to the rising sun on midwinter day and the western tomb aligned to the setting sun on midwinter day. So did they come from one of those directions when they were coming to the site? Did they cross the river, for example, you know? So even that, on that level, because at Newgrange it's very clear where the approach is because you have a circle round about of stones and the two, curb, the two standing stones in the, in the stone circle, not the curb stone, but the stone circle, the two standing stones in front of the entrance are actually red sandstone, whereas the other ones are uh, green sandstone. Uh, it was uh, uh, Steve Mandel, actually, that pointed that out to me, was a geologist. And the, so we know the direction, so to speak, the ceremonial direction coming up to Newgrange, and there's only one entrance, so to speak. 
more tricky with a place like Knockrow. But I do imagine that there would have been gatherings. Um, I, I think, you know, as you say yourself, Neil, it, it is a landscape that, you know, it lends itself to reflection almost, you know, when you're standing there. And it's an extraordinary sight to see the sun coming up in the morning and dropping down in the evening there, you know, in this lovely area. Um, but also, I think, maybe I'm wrong on this, I also like to think there were private visits to these places. And... Uh, by their very nature, as you know, most people they would be familiar with Newgrange and being able to go in groups of about 15 or 20 at a time, you know. But as you also know, Neil, that, that's rare, actually. That's unique, in a sense, in Ireland, you know. But in general, in Ireland, only one or two people, or three or four maybe, could crawl into one of these passage tombs at a time. Some of the larger ones maybe... You know, I remember, for example, that um, La Croix, when you go up to Carantee at La Croix and you have a group of students or whatever with you, you've got to bring them in in groups of about eight or ten at the very most at a time into Carantee. And that's to stand without doing any ceremony, so to speak. So I think very few people could have actually gone into the tombs. And uh, so when you're talking then about the communal gatherings, I'm thinking of people gathering but I'm also trying to think, were there people who had almost, you know, who were the people who went into the tombs and how did they prepare and what were the expectations of them and so forth and who presided over the whole thing? It's very interesting because it, it's hard not to imagine it in a kind of almost stratified class with, you know, yes. certain, you know priests, the, the, like, yes. some kind of a priest that is officiating and then perhaps rulers or chiefs of some description might be allowed in, but everybody else is outside enjoying being together and they're waiting to find out, did the sun appear, baby? That's kind of how I see. Yeah, yeah. I, I imagine so. And um, I mean, again, you know it yourself, Neil, at, at um, you know, at Knockrow, like we, you know, people stand on what is essentially the cairn and stand mm -hmm. around, but, we we don't know exactly what it looked like at the beginning. Was there a full cairn there, for example? In which case, they could never have stood where we stand today, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, so did they stand outside, as you would at Newgrange, mm -hmm. um, which I presume they did? How far back did the ordinary people have to stand and how many were allowed to come up? Into, you know, it's a, it, And I think that's what gives it richness because we're allowed to play with those thoughts ourselves. The other thing to bear in mind, I think, is that the tomb was a focus, as it is today, but just as the, the River Boyne um, is, you know, maybe the real focus in the case of the Boyne Valley, mm -hmm. you know, it's possible that the little tributary, the Lingon, which comes down actually of the Mon, which itself was a magical mountain, that it's possible that the river might almost have been more important, you know, in the sense that if you imagine a graveyard today uh, in a, you know, in a churchyard, you know, the graves are important, but the reason the graves are there is because the church is there. Yes. Yeah. You know, in a sense, it's possible that the sites like, like Dogro, which are spectacular, are there because they're beside the river. So the same way that you have a cairn on top of the of the Mon as well. It's yeah. not the cairn, it's the mountain, you know? So I, I don't know if that... No, I think that's really interesting. I think there's a lot of parallels, actually, with the Lignan Valley and... and the Boyne Valley in a lot of ways as well, because even when you look outside of the Neolithic, it seems both landscapes are incredibly rich all the way through, you know, Absolutely. Irish history. You've got, of course, a Henny, for example, and 
Uh, uh, Karen, is it? You have a, a few other serious high crosses there at the Lingard. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, Kilamery and uh, and and uh, and then above Henny, you have the you have uh, Carrigadoon. The Doon yeah. comes from the fort that's on top of that hill as well. That's yeah. right. Yeah. So yeah. there is certainly the rivers are the uh, seem to be something and, all the way through history. And and the other thing about it is um, the Boyne today, uh, or the Boyne in early medieval times, was obviously a boundary between. You know, it, it was a boundary. It has been a boundary. Obviously, a contested river, as we know from the Battle of the Boyne. You know. And the same is true of the Lingon, which uh, in uh, early medieval times, there were actually around a thousand AD, there were actually battles being fought back and forward across that because it was the division between the Kingdom of Austria and the Kingdom of Munster. And in fact, today, it's the boundary between Kilkenny and Tipperary, which maybe is an even more fierce battle when it comes to hurling, you know. And, uh, but also between Leinster and Munster and between different dioceses. So it's a very important boundary. And I suspect sometimes these boundaries can go all the way back to the Stone Age, which might again be an important dimension of them. Absolutely. Again, it kind of takes the focus... Uh, you know, we get so focused on the tangible tombs, don't we? But we forget yes. they're sitting within this broader landscape that has that, that gives it its purpose and meaning almost. Yeah. Exactly, yes. And we walk the same landscape as these people did in the past, you know. Well, that's it. That's something I always liked about um, monuments on top of mountains in that yeah. the landscape might change a lot. There might be tree plantations, whatever, but the contours of the hill are largely yeah. the same. So you can kind of feel a sort of connection almost with them struggling quite a bit. True. Yeah, that absolutely. Was... And I also find it fascinating that in the case of Steve Le Mans especially, um, you know, that just as the Boyne is such an important dimension of the, uh, of the, of the Boyne Valley, and it was Claire Tuffy and Ken um, uh, who told me that um, the one night they were actually doing some, you know, taking some photographs and Ken Williams and Claire Tuffy and the, um, they could hear a, a booming sound. They were at mouth and it took a while to realize it was in the dead of night. And it took a while to realize that the booming sound was actually the River Boyne going by which you don't notice by day because of the cars and general hustle of modern living. But if you imagine in the Stone Age, people could hear the river going by. And remember, coming into mythology in early medieval times, the river is the person, it's the, the Boyne is not just a river, it's the goddess. Yeah, and you can hear the goddess booming, you know. And there's, you know, there's it's alive, in other words, you know. I think it's very hard for us always to capture some of those fears and terrors and so on that people would have had. I think you're so right. I remember a, a number of years ago, I was living in North Kildare at the time, and it was supposed to be one of these, I think, Perseid Meteor Show. It was supposed to be yeah. one of these that was going to be very visible from Ireland. So I thought it'd be a great thing to go out to the Hill of Tara. And, yeah. you know, and it was a beautiful, clear evening when I left the house in Kilcock. And by the time I got to Tara, it was completely clouded over and everything was bright yes. orange, you know, from yeah. streetlights and, and places like that. But I remember approaching a site that I'd seen countless, you know, I've been on the hill of Tara many times. Yeah. But at night, it had a completely different feel, almost a, an alien kind of, uh, you know, the, the, the banqueting hall felt so much kind of bigger and more yeah. imposing. And we tend to look at these sites in daylight and yeah. 
they're quite sterile in some ways. I think that's what's interesting about the experience at Newgrange as well, that you're going from this darkness, this difference into yeah. to the everyday. Yeah. And you wonder, you know, with modern cars and so on, we turn up in the morning to see these places. Uh, to see the sunrise, you know, you wonder, it's often something I, I wonder about, did they travel through the night or did they arrive the night before, you know, that the nighttime experience might have been important. I think again of pilgrimage sites like Sarkir in the County Offaly, where um, there's, uh, while the special, the, the pilgrimage is held on the 5th of March, the feast of St. Kieran, you know, the date of his death, the there is special sort of efficacy in making the pilgrimage by night to the Holy Well, mm, okay. which is a very interesting day in the minds of people. So that, um, it, it, I think, as you say, we often forget that about the past, the power of darkness. You well, know that Darkness is almost alien to us now, isn't it? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, we, we have so little relation to that proper, true, natural darkness, you know, it, it's very rarely encountered. So I do think it's a dimension we perhaps don't think of now. And uh, yeah, we probably don't understand the night sky as well as they did because of that. You yeah. know, we have, we tend to see only the brightest stars, you know, because of the, you know, we go outside our door and we can see a certain amount, you know. But if you, as you say, if you're in certain parts of the country where there's real darkness, yeah. Um, and uh, you know, I, I even often talk about coming up to Christmas myself. I was born in West Kerry, and uh, when I was a child, we didn't have electricity. Mm -hmm. So on uh, Christmas Eve, there would be candles lighting in every window, and those candles, you know, there were beacons. You know, now they wouldn't even be noticed. You know, <laughs> sort of uh, with all the other lights. You know, so it's it's very difficult for us today to appreciate what it was like in in that world, which was a different world. So I think that's the thing about these people. And going with that, then is um, uh, one of our students told me a story, and I can identify with this coming from West Kerry, mm -hmm. that his father his father's from Cavan. And sometimes he goes, you know, up there with his father and they would go for a drink together, uh, which meant a walk of maybe about a mile or two mm -hmm. into the local village for a drink, a pub, into the pub. On the way home, his father had a nervousness about the darkness that he couldn't quite identify with. You know, and I know this myself from, you know, there were beliefs around certain things you know like my, my mother told me stories that would make the hair stand on the back of your neck you know this to do with darkness you know and beliefs around things and you know things being heard and then discovering the next day that someone had died you know this type of thing you know it's sort of a it's very difficult for us to always buy into that it's a spirituality in a sense well that's it yeah i mean for us now darkness is just the time to power off and yeah you know it doesn't have meaning in the same way I don't think. No, exactly. I don't think so. I heard Brian Keenan talking about darkness mm -hmm. um, and it was extraordinary, I have to say, you know, um, that experience of living in complete darkness and, you know, um, how it actually changes your thinking. Yes, I, I yeah. imagine. And it makes yeah. you think again of, of that process. And I know when, we, when I was discussing this with Claire as well, that moment before the light appears. Oh, in, yes. Remember, yes. When you're in the darkness. 
Absolutely. And the magic of the light itself suddenly appearing, you know, yeah. yes. Even for us who know it's going to happen, so to speak, yes. you know, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I often imagine that, you know, that and behind all of that again, and I keep coming back to it, it's like the artwork in a sense, that there is the technicality going to put that and the actual just the the experiential element of it, you know, this light appearing, this beautiful uh, needle of light at Newgrange, um, and the golden colour of it, which you can't replicate with electricity, you know, it's just so spectacular. But the behind that is what did it mean? You know, what did they understand the sun to be? Mm-hmm. You know, you know, like was it a symbol for them, or was it a real thing, or a person, or you know? And I think it's that power in the sense that we can get to the technicality of seeing and then we can just begin to reach towards what it might have meant towards them and maybe to a lot of guests. But then the more we try to get to what it meant to them, the more we're getting to what it means to us. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's difficult, isn't it? It's, uh, yeah. it's really hard to be objective when it comes to belief and meaning. Absolutely, yeah. Exactly. It is very difficult to be objective, you know. And, uh, I, I, you know, belief is around life experience in a sense, you know. It is, yeah. for sure. And I suppose, you know, although it's a site that's very familiar in many ways, you know, and it's a big world heritage site now, and, yes. and you know, I, I think the Boyne Valley kind of, it has been a real focus for study in archaeology for for many many years, but just in the last few years, it seems like we're, we're you know there's new stories being uncovered almost every year. You know, going from the discovery of the large hen, so-called drone hens, there by uh, Anthony Murphy and Ken Williams, and the National Monument Survey have been doing more studies. Yeah. The new excavations at Dowth by Cleaner uh, and the ancient DNA uh, analysis as yeah. well. Absolutely. Do you think, how, how has that kind of changed the way that you think of the builders of Newgrange, if you like? Do you see them in a completely different light than you did even five or ten years ago? Or, or do you think, it has it shifted your perception dramatically? Or is it just, yeah, we, we always knew there was more to come out and I'm glad to see it? Yeah, I think we knew, but we probably didn't realise the scale of it. And I suppose I've I've been fortunate as well over the past year or two to be involved in putting together. There is um, a, a video being prepared for the Boyne Valley called the uh, Ceremonial Landscape, and it's part of the new exhibition. Mm. And I've been involved in that, and you know, working from these crop marks, and that's really all we have, and one or two excavations. How do you replicate what existed uh, in the late Neolithic? You know because it was all wooden, but all we have are the actual holes in the ground where, you know, the, and so in terms of the height and how sturdy, et cetera, you know, there's a lot of um, uh, implication you're trying to imply or guess how it might have been, I'm so much guess, but it's an informed guess. But nevertheless, in spite of all of that, when you look at this landscape with the modern sort of um, folds taken off it, you know, the modern vegetation taken off it, and then these monuments reconstructed. And of course, the difficulty is we don't know because we haven't sufficient information, did they all exist at the same time or were they successive and so forth, you know? But allowing for all of that, it's extraordinary how crowded with monuments the Boyne Valley was in the late Neolithic. And as you know, the LIDAR and geophysics are still discovering new ones. Yeah. Now there's a, it's, 
how will I put it? There's um, it's 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 understood that they're from the late Neolithic, but some of them might turn out to be from other periods. And I suppose we have to bear that in mind. Right. But nevertheless, as in terms of scale, Newgrange doesn't look big compared with them. I'll put it that way. Yeah. You know that um, the, the amount of timber that was used, for example, was extra. So there must have been a very vibrant civilization that walked there. And as you know, they were obviously in contact with Orkney and various other places in Britain um, at that time. So, but what I find interesting is that I see continuity now, whereas before I would have seen a break, so to speak. I, I think um, you have a certain amount of continuity. Um, the Boyne Valley appears, and as you know it now, you'd had habitation and other, you know, we don't know what the nature of that was prior to the building of the passage tombs. But then you had the passage tombs, and then you had this continuation into these wonderful circular ceremonial monuments and other types of monuments, as you know. But then what happened after that? It seemed to, so it was almost like, a, you know, it got deflated, you know, like a, a football that, you know, all the air that went out of it, you know, because not a whole lot seems to be there after that, even though there is evidence of some activity. Yeah. So, I find it fascinating. Did they spin themselves out, so to speak? Well, that's it, isn't it? It kind of, and I think the only way that we'll even get close to answering that question is by using a multitude of different lenses, you know, from Absolutely. the archaeology itself and survey, of course, put to ancient DNA, looking at the climate. Was there a big reason for climatic change? And all of these things start to give, fill in little pieces of the, the jigsaw almost that we start to develop. A bit. Precisely. I mean, even, you know, I suppose, you know, we we tend to go in cycles in terms of our understanding of these businesses. And all of the time, we're often thinking in terms of analogy, in terms of explaining things. Mm. But who could have predicted, for example, this time last year, yeah. that you and I would be having this conversation via Zoom? You know, <laughs> yeah. and would have to have it by via Zoom, you know. But and it's because of this pandemic. Who's to say they didn't have a pandemic? That's it, exactly. You know, uh, like, uh, you know of, of some form or other, or, you know, it could be so many things. It could be a collapse, as you say, in terms of the climate. Uh, so many things could have affected them. It could even have been some of the social things, yeah. you know, that, uh, you know, that, um, <clears throat> you know the, the particular family may have, well, we don't know, splintered or whatever, you know. And I think that's an important point, too, because I think, isn't that the case in Mesoamerica, whether it was with the, the Maya or the Aztecs, I'm not sure, but towards the end of the civilization almost, everything got heightened. They started to build even more grander temples and, and so on. Precisely, yes, yeah. I think, yeah, because I am fascinated by that myself, even through the Neolithic, you know, that hmm. what is this, uh, you know, impetus to try to build these massive monuments? coming from, you know, a, a thousand years, less than a thousand years before Newgrange was built, even six or 700 years, probably, people were building little wooden huts and not a whole lot more, you know, and yet they got into building these massive monuments. Um, <clears throat> I like to think myself that what was happening, and maybe I'm completely wrong on this, but as farming spread and became more, you know, common across the countryside, as the countryside was opened up, I often think that places that had been very special and mysterious in the, in the you know, before farming arrived, uh, in the woods and so on, mountainous places, etc., that 
they were coming under threat maybe in some cases and were no longer so special, you know, that maybe even the impetus might have been shifting elsewhere. And I often wonder, was the building of megalithic tombs almost a way of marking these special places that, you know, that, hold on now a second, this place is special, not just as somewhere where you can plant your crops or graze your cattle, you know, there is more to this here. And, you know, almost a, a battle against, maybe as you say, a battle against advancing civilization or something like that, you know. But maybe that's being unfair to them. But it does look like they put more and more energy into building. And then, as you say, it sort of, you know, it, it filtered out, you know. And, and you wonder, could it be the, the other side of the coin? Maybe it was an increasingly authoritarian centralising of power that, you know, it was, I have the resources to build all of this. These people, I'm the top of the pyramid and I'm going to kind of look after the religious beliefs now as well by centralising that into one location I can control, maybe. That's quite true too. That, that's definitely a possibility and I suppose... The, the, this where the DNA becomes interesting, you know, where you, you begin to see that uh, this thing of this these familiar links between people, you know, and um, I suppose it highlights again, and I'm sure Jessica Smith will have spoken about this, that it highlights again that uh, the danger of, you know, we always run with the new scientific technical development and we forget the nuanced understanding of how this might have come about. So, for example, the you know, people being related whose bones are found in different tombs. Well, we know enough to know that they move bones around. So it's quite possible. It may not have been the people who are in these different places, but their bones, you know. Yes. So, yeah, so we have to kind of bear in mind what might have been going on at a cultural level, so to speak, as well. That's it. I mean, you know, it's the old adage, isn't it? The past is a very foreign country, <laughs> you know. Yeah, absolutely. Like Definitely. And, you know, the these people... Even in their building of the tombs and their use of um, different things, you know, they're, 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 the way they had the alignments, they, mm-hmm. what they did with the artwork, um, the sort of focus on the right-hand side of tombs, you know, there are so many different things. What they did with bones, this mixing of unburned infant bones with, with burned uh, adult bones, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it looks like they were doing interesting and complex things with with burial you know and i think uh, we have to kind of give them credit for that i think you know there's a a tendency again to see it just as we see it rather than looking at what they were doing so for example on a very small level there are uh, bone pins found within the burials as you know with the you know with the burials and uh, tara clark a student in ucd some years ago she did um, some experimental work with these bones. Uh, they're made from the metacarpal bones of sheep. And she um, took some of these bones and, you know, made them into the type of pins they had and then experimented with uh, how they would have ended up as we find them. She found a very interesting thing that um, I had noticed that the bone, these bone pins were all broken in the same way at the Mount of the Hostages at Tara. And I noticed the same thing at Knock Row. But then Tara discovered that this was true, but that the place where they were broken was different at Knock Row from what it was at the Mount of the Hostages. So in other words, it was presumed the same person in each case, you know, two different people, obviously, but the same person who did all the ones at Knock Row and the same person who did all the ones at, at Tara. So um, 
this was actually some kind of a little ceremonial thing. And it was also, she also found that if those bone pins had gone in with the bones and been burnt with the bones, they actually would have been completely destroyed. Yes. And she found that they only survive when you actually throw them into the hot ashes afterwards. Okay. So that's on a very small level, it shows you the sort of amount of information that's available there for us if we actually study how they went about doing things. That's it. Take ourselves out of it and try to put ourselves in. Yeah, try to get a sense of what they were at. So you can almost imagine then maybe you get a better picture of the type of ceremonies that were involved at the time. Absolutely. And I suppose on that, is there anything you'd like people to think about when they think about Newgrange or the Neolithic in general? What kind of, you know, we've talked a little bit about, you know, how people kind of perceive Nowth and Newgrange and, and, and so on. They're all plumped down at the same time and such. What kind of misconceptions do you think are generally out there about the Neolithic and, and what would you like people to think about those people instead? Well, I suppose the first thing I should say is that when I used to give the adult education lectures in UCD, I would give what I thought was a very learned lesson about or lecture about something like passage tombs. And then someone would stand up and just cut the ground from under me without realizing it by asking me a very innocent question. How many people were living in Ireland at that time? <laughs> and you, which is an absolutely valid question, you know. And funnily enough, you know, when you think about it, there were a lot less people living in Ireland than there are today. It was actually a much less populated country. And I think that's important when we see these extraordinary achievements. You know, it's from within a much smaller gene pool, so to speak, if you want to put it that way, you know. Um, and that's one thing. Um, they were exactly like us in terms of their intelligence, you know. They weren't dirty just because they're old. They're, you know, they were there a long time ago. They yeah. didn't live in rags. They didn't just have beards just because they lived a long time ago. They may have had beards, I don't know, you know. Um, I think really the point is that um, very often if you visit a house that's been abandoned for the past hundred years, the house is a mess. But anyone who knows, you know, people lived in those houses, kept them tidied and dusted and painted and were very proud of these houses, you know. Um, that's, you know, that, that disappears, it goes back into nature. And we tend to think of the past as being less of a lot of things than we are, less of the good things and more of the bad things. I like to think of it as a place that a lot of what we have, um, they had music, for example, which we should never forget. Um, presumably they had some people who were very witty and so forth. They would have had a, probably had a lot more respect, I think, for, gifts that we have neglected like divining and you know people with natural gifts of healing and then second sight you know those types of gifts i think they probably had great respect for those they probably didn't live as long as we do so they had to do more in a shorter space of time so to speak and i think the biggest um misconception about people at that time i've often heard is that when they stopped um uh, being hunter gatherers and started farming that it gave them more time on their, on their hands. Coming from a small farm myself as a youngster, being on a farm does not give you less more time. In fact, it's very interesting that it took Ireland about a thousand years after the coming of farming to northwestern France for farming to take hold in Ireland. And I suspect the reason is that people are doing quite well without all this hard work, you know. 
So I, I think they were, you know, they were just, uh, that probably had a lot of our old qualities, Neil, you know. That, that's I don't know if that's helpful. No, it, it, I mean, yeah. I, I think about them in a similar way. They're just like us, only with a different toolkit, essentially. Yeah, you know? uh, exactly. A different, and born into maybe a different way of thinking. I'd just like to thank Morris again for his time. I thought there was some brilliant insights there. I really enjoyed our chat. I always enjoy chatting to Morris. Um, there are going to be more episodes coming out. We're going to be releasing five in total as a mini-series on Newgrange in particular and the winter solstice in the Elithic Island. So please make sure that you subscribe to our podcast at uh, Amplify Archaeology, whichever podcast platform you're on. If you... Uh, rate and review us that'll really help other people to find us as well that'll be much much appreciated you can also keep an eye on our website at abataheritage.ie the next episode goes out tomorrow and it's going to be another fascinating discussion thank you very much